the best way to impact the next generation is through their parents. So when parents understand anxiety, their own and their kids, they can support those changes and make those changes at home that will benefit their kids for the rest of their lives and the next generation. Just because someone looks a certain way on the outside doesn't mean that that's who they are on the inside. Most of us, we don't know ourselves. We haven't dealt with the trauma. We haven't dealt with the childhood pains and emotional injuries. And so we are living in bodies as men, but quite often we're acting like children. Relational injuries require relational healing. I help people recognize who they are and what they've come through so that they can be the most full, mature, authentic version of themselves. We have these understandings of ourselves and that's where we live from. We live from a place of belief and it's the beliefs that create the emotions. But most people aren't aware of the beliefs that govern their lives. When you find yourself doing this particular thing that you don't want to be doing, how old do you feel? If you imagine a negative future, like the horror movie called your life, you're going to feel anxious in your body. It, I call it the live formula, right? And because when you apologize using this formula, your apology lives on long after you've offered it. You're listening to The Grind and Gratitude Show. I am Danny Stone, and I've dedicated my entire life to helping people win. Win in their careers, win in their businesses, and win in their lives. This podcast is going to help you get on your grind and hustle to create the life that you love and walk in gratitude along the journey. Each episode, I'll teach you tools and tactics and bring you conversations with experts that will help you turn your passion into a thriving online business. Life isn't about wishing for something greater. It's about making it happen. There's something special about you. Grind until you find it. Be grateful when you get it. Welcome back to the Grind and Gratitude Show. If this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much. If you're an avid listener and watcher on YouTube of the podcast, you already know I got a lot of love for you. My name is Danny Stone, also known as Coach Stone is in the building. And I'm super excited to have my guest here. Oh, look, I met this guy. I think we met a few times. We actually spoke on a couple of panels together. Shout out to my good friend, Moy Fung. Uh, she's the one that had us on these panels together. And the very first time that I heard him speak, I said, I like this brother. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy. I like I, I like the way that he looks at things and his perspective. And, you know, we say a lot of the same things, but different ways. So I thought it would be amazing to bring him on the show to talk to you all about mental health and mindset and habits and share a little bit of his story. So let me welcome Mr. Andrew Blackwood to the show, also known as Coach Drew. Yeah, What's going on, brother? I'm, I'm doing good, man. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. You know, the first time that I, I heard you speaking on this panel, you know, you, you're very articulate, but it's not even articulate. I just like the way that you break things down. Right? I like the way you keep things really simple so that we can all understand. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And, you know, Moy, Moy, Moy is amazing. She connected us, but we also have another connection. My brother, Mark Blackwood, is the graphic designer who, 
Yeah, that's him. That's okay, he did the design for the new for the, the new me. The new that's right. So that's for those right. who that's don't right. know, I co-wrote this book, New Me, with nine other black men. You can see our big faces there on the back. <laughs> so your brother designed this cover, this book cover for us, and, and he designed this book cover for me. Oh wow! Okay. The art of a genuine apology. Oh man, we got We definitely got to get into. The, okay, so some people, you already see what's going on here, right? You see, you see what's happening. <laughs> you got the connection. So, look, man. Before we jump in, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and and sort of what you do. Yeah. So I am first and foremost a believer, a father, a husband. I've got two daughters and two foster sons. So we got a full house over here in St. Catharines, Ontario. And I've been a mental health professional for over 18 years. I started in youth corrections and youth detention. And, you know, I learned that the best way to impact the next generation is through their parents. Because even when you serve kids, they go home to the same environment. So I've really focused a lot in the past couple of years on supporting parents to understand what I believe to be the epidemic of the age, which is anxiety. Mm. And it gets in the way of everything quality. So when parents understand anxiety, their own and their kids, they can support those changes and make those changes at home that will benefit their kids for the rest of their lives and the next generation. So that's who I am. That's what I've been doing. Man, that's very powerful. You know, let's start with, you know, you working in these detention centers, right? That's where you... So, like, how did you end up on that career path? What was it that led you to, to doing that type of work? Honestly, my first degree was in music. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't make any sense. So I studied vocal pedagogy, classical music. I was a, I'm a bass baritone. Okay. And so I had the privilege of going to HBCU, a historically black college and university in Huntsville, Alabama, Oakwood College and University. Wait, yeah. I think my, did my, my wife went there, I think. I have to yeah? ask her. I think so. Oh, then I know she went to school in Alabama, so I might yeah, have to find yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. So I had the privilege of touring so many different states and some islands and, and different locations. And I came back to Ontario with a classical music degree, knowing that I did not want to pursue classical music. <laughs> so I'm like, God, where do I go from here? And oddly enough, there was an opening in a detention center where a couple of friends of mine worked. Right. And I've always been intrigued by the mind. So I said, you know what? Let me see what, you know, comes of this. And to be honest, Coach Stone, I hated that job. Wow. I hated really? that job. Really? Every day was just like, it was a horror show going into that place. The stories would break your heart. And I mean, there were kids there who didn't need to be there you know, trapped in a system because somebody accused them of something or some minor infraction. They, you know, said they were going to punch somebody or stab somebody with a pencil. I'm talking about like an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, like, and they get caught up in a system. And, but then you have other kids there who aren't kids anymore and they're there for, you know, attempt murder or murder. Right. So you never really know what was going to happen in the day. And and the the biggest 
challenge for me was I didn't know myself very well. Mm. So I was, it was in my, my 20s, and I was an anxious person. Right. I was, I was in my 20s, but on the inside, I was an eight-year-old little boy. Oh, wow. And so it was, it was, it was difficult for me. And I, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but <laughs> I actually moved on from there as I was doing my master's and I was learning about myself and anxiety and all these things. I ended up so working. Wait, wait, how long did you stay there for? How long did you oh, have that job? I was there for several years. Oh, okay. several years. I stayed, I stayed there through my master's. Uh, I did my master's of divinity and counseling. It was a three-year program, but I was working, putting myself through school, so I did it. You were there for some time, then. You were there for four or five years or so. Yeah, I was there for four years. Okay. So when part of what I did in my master's was I, I did my 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 practicum and things like that, and I was a facilitator for the partner abuse response program. So this is a program for men who allegedly abuse their their partners. Wow. So I went from little kids <laughs> to grown men with, <laughs> with with anger issues, which just drummed up all my my daddy issues. <laughs> but you know, to be honest with you, I that's where I grew the most. I talk about it in the book actually, because I not only finished my practicum, but I went back and I continued to serve as a facilitator there because I learned so much about myself in the process. I learned that just because someone looks a certain way on the outside doesn't mean that that's who they are on the inside. Yeah. And most of us, we don't know ourselves. We haven't dealt with the trauma. We haven't dealt with the childhood pains and emotional injuries. And so we are living in bodies as men, but quite often we're acting like children. Mm. And it's not until you really understand what's happening for you and how you can heal from that where you can actually be your true and authentic self. So a lot of the times, one of my professors, he said, relational injuries require relational healing. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I find it to be so true. So... That's what I do now. I help people recognize who they are and what they've come through so that they can be the most full, mature, authentic version of themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's really powerful. I I think, you know, I've worked with lots of men. I've worked in so many different environments. I've worked with young people in low-income housing and, you know, men who are incarcerated, men who are formerly incarcerated. I've worked in the corporate world. I work with business owners. I work with so many different people. And I see these blockers that get in the way of them reaching more of their full potential. And a lot of people just chalk it up to, I just don't have the the resources. I'm not smart enough. Fear of what other people have to say about me. And to be honest with you, I had all of those things too. You know, I grew up in very low-income housing surrounded by drugs and crime. And I used to tell myself those lies, right? And what I realized is that a lot of my childhood trauma and anxiety and situations we carry into adulthood, and we think that we're over them and they're not. 
Mm-hmm. And so we just chalk up not getting ahead to society doesn't want me, other people's opinions and all that, which does. But when you know who you are, you have a different type of confidence. And, and that's what I worked on for years. You know, once I got this confidence, you, you, you care less and less about what people have to say. And you're not using those excuses of I'm not enough and all that. When the real story is the trauma and the anxiety and all that. Do you, do you, do you see that? Do you agree with that? Or do you think that's inaccurate? No, I think that's very, very accurate to whether you are the CEO of a company or you are a stay at home parent, whatever it is, we have these understandings of ourselves and that's where we live from. We live from a place of belief and it's the beliefs that create the emotions but most people aren't aware of the beliefs that govern their lives, right? Mm-hmm. We basically live how we feel. So when I meet with people and they are having those challenges with being their best selves and they find themselves in these cycles again and again and again, one of the things that I ask them is when you find yourself doing this particular thing that you don't want to be doing, how old do you feel? And some people can put an age on it. Some people might not be able to put an age, but they're like, I feel really young, right? And when we go back to those times in their lives, it starts to make sense for them. They're thinking and behaving as they did when they were that age because they went through something, but they didn't have the capacity and the skills to process that. So when I work with people who we we use the term trauma, right, which is basically a disruption in your growth. Right. If you break a bone, break something, you know, the natural progression is is stalled. It's Mm. stunted until it's repaired. Same thing happens with us emotionally. So it's like someone presses pause on your emotional development. And it's not until you go back and you experience that healing where you can realize, oh, I'm not there anymore. And then they have access to all of who they actually currently are. So my experience of working with those angry men, man, I felt like an eight-year-old. I was 31 <laughs> when, I, when I experienced this real big significant shift. I felt like an eight-year-old, a little eight-year-old boy when this man was getting mad and he was coming at me, not physically, but he was coming for me in the group right. <laughs> and I'm the facilitator, right? right. So it was, I handled it really well and it was my co-facilitator, Stephanie, amazing, amazing woman. After the fact, she, 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 she was just giving me some feedback. She's like, you handled that really well. You navigated that so well. And the tone of the whole conversation really shifted because of how I handled it. And I was like, yeah, I did do a good job, <laughs> didn't I? Didn't I? And I started to think about it. I was like, yeah, no, I didn't sink to his level. I didn't, I wasn't disrespectful. I didn't, I didn't even have to raise my tone. I was. I was meek. I was in control, kind of like Jesus. Like, yeah, that was, that was, that was good. And I started to reflect on who I actually was. Mm. I started to reflect on the bass in my voice. I started to reflect on the hair on my face. You can see I got a lot of hair on my face. Yeah, exactly. I'm a full grown man. Right. And it was like, I was finally starting to catch up to my current self. And I was able to say, okay, you're not that little scared boy anymore who wasn't in control. Mm -hmm. Like you have 
this capacity, you have this strength, you have these resources. And it started to unlock things for me that when I go into new environments now, I don't go in thinking that I have nothing to offer. Mm. I go in with an awareness of who I am, who I'm called and created to be. And I'm continually growing in that awareness. But I find that so many people can relate to that, but they just don't know how to revisit things, how to process things and how to grow through things. Man, that's very powerful. I I think when sometimes when people see someone who's done some work on themselves in very whatever capacity that is, whether it's, you know, counseling, whether it's therapy, whether it's faith, whether it's that internal work, when they see you, they think you're always like this. Like, I can't imagine Drew not being cool, calm, and collected and not knowing himself. Like, the way this guy talks, he just seems like he has it all together. So what was your childhood like? What was it like for you growing up? Oh, man. It, 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 was, it was a good mix of stuff. I, I grew up in the church. I, I come from two wonderful Jamaican parents. Okay. And their marriage didn't last. And from the age of eight, I knew that it wasn't going to last. So you, you knew know, that at eight. You knew at eight. That oh, you're... yeah, 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 yeah. It it was clear the the unresolved stuff was just everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you know they they kind of did their best, and up until age thirteen, and that's when I ended up testifying in court. So you know, <laughs> I remember that day. My 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 dad on the left, my mom on the right, and the judge looks at me and says, Can your dad come home? Asked you. Ask me. <laughs> okay. Right? Like, you know, what a position to be in as a 13-year-old to and a lot of people can relate to this, having to protect your parent, protect your mom, but at the same time now, you're betraying your father. Mm. You know. And what happens? What? How do we find ourselves in places like this? Believe it or not, it's always the same thing. It's unaddressed emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Because as much as my father loved us and would never want his family to be torn apart, this was a generational pattern. Mm-hmm. And because he didn't address those wounds between him and his father, they were finding their way into the next generation. And thankfully, I was able to address the wounds with me and my father. And what did that like? When, what did that look like? How did you like when did you kind of start to to heal those wounds with your father? Like, because there's a lot of people right now who, you know, they, they may be estranged from their parents. They may not have a relationship with one or, or both of their parents for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And they just you know, accept that that's the way that it's always going to be. So like, what did you do to kind of heal that relationship and mend that relationship with your father? You know, I I can't take 100% responsibility for it. I was 16. So this is three years after my father left garbage bags in hand after that day at court. And we had this dynamic because now you're single, living in a single parent household growing up, you know, you need that other income. So even though you don't have relationship, you need money. 
So the engagement, you're basically like using the man that's your father, you know, and I know that created a lot of pain for him, but I witnessed a lot of pain too. So I'm just like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just your fault. Essentially, right. I blamed him, you know, 13, 14, 15, you think you know everything. And at that point, we just had stopped talking. We had right. stopped talking. And I was like, I'd never talk to this man again. And, and God spoke to me. It's just like, Colin, mm -hmm. tell him you love him. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. You know, whenever you argue with God, you're going to lose. So <laughs> <laughs> I lost, I lost that battle. And I called him, told him I loved him. And the relationship started to repair conversation after conversation after conversation. And by the time I was going off to Oakwood College, my dad had become the most supportive person in my life. Hmm. And he paid for my first year in college. He helped me, you know, pay off my debts after I got back from college. Mm -hmm. My father always, always believed in me. Wow. Always believed in me. But because of his pain, his pain influenced his parenting. My mm -hmm. dad was so anxious and afraid to lose things that, as most people do, it came out as control and anger. Mm -hmm. So I knew this as an angry man. I didn't see this as a concerned man. So over the years, learning about myself, my anxiety, learning about these other men, learning at people and looking at my father, I started to understand him more. Mm -hmm. And we are, we are closer than we've ever been. Man, that's so, that's really amazing. And, and, you know, there's a, two things. The first thing is, I love what you said, his pain influenced his parenting. And I never grew up with my father. My father left when I was like one or one and a half, right? So, and it was normal. It was, it was you know, living in low-income housing, it was abnormally normal that nobody's father was around. And so when you grow up in that environment, we all just accept it. And, you know, sometimes somebody might see their father with a new family or, or doing whatever. I, that wasn't my case because my father... I grew up in Nova Scotia and my father was living in Toronto and every once in a while he would come back to Nova Scotia. But I remember when I was a kid, knowing that he was coming back to the city, I'd be, you know, six, seven, eight, waiting on the step. He doesn't show up, the typical thing, right? And, you know, it wasn't until I was, I got older, probably, you know, 17, 18, I was a pretty good basketball player. A lot of people were talking about me and every once in a while he would come back and he would hear from my cousins that I played with and against and my uncles, because all these people used to come watch me play, but he'd never seen a game, right? And I had this bitterness and all that kind of stuff too. And it was almost like I had to have this difficult conversation with him when I was in my 20s. I just said like, we have to talk, just figure out what's going on. I need to know who you are. You know, one day I'm going to have a family and I need to know what you're all about. And so our relationship is still kind of up and down, but I reached out. We have this. We we still speak and stuff like that, and we're slowly kind of getting to a a place where we can have consistent conversations and get to know each other. But I, I think that maybe you can speak to this. You know, sometimes when you feel someone has wronged you or that caused you pain or hurt, and you 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 think that you're putting them at a distance is is your healing. It's not right. Mm -hmm. And so for me. As I got older, I realized that there's people in my life that I have to address and have very difficult conversations with. 
And it's about me, not them. And it's a way for me to kind of release and then move on. So like, what would you say to that? Because sometimes people think distance between me and a person is, is healing in itself. <laughs> and you and I both know it's not. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we, we have those emotional cutoffs and, you know, that we create that distance where essentially we run away. And I think sometimes it's healthy to run. Yeah. Yet the reality is you can't run from your own pain. Wherever you go, it's going to be with you. Right. So it's best to learn how to address it and to see if this person is a safe enough person to do that healing That's process true. with. Yeah. You know, contrary to popular belief, while relationships, relational wounds require relational healing, you don't necessarily need to connect to that person who hurt you in order to heal. Yeah. So more important than connecting with that person is understanding what you need to heal. Mm. So, you know, this raises the topic of forgiveness. So I talk about forgiveness, the art of a genuine apology and reconciliation in this book, mm -hmm. but they're three different things. Mm -hmm. They can work together. Genuine apology serves as a bridge from forgiveness to reconciliation, but they're very, very different. Forgiveness only requires one, whereas reconciliation requires two. Mm. So that's why people can forgive and not connect with somebody else and still experience the healing. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas if you want to move forward in your relationship together, that requires two people agreeing, like, where are we going? How are we going to get there? Right. What's going to be different? So if somebody is not safe or ready to reconcile, because that's one of the important things about reconciliation, there are signs of readiness. Mm -hmm. Just because somebody says sorry and they're sincere doesn't mean that they're ready for reconciliation. So it's important to differentiate the, those three pieces. But we're talking about healing and, and forgiveness. And a lot of people have trouble with forgiveness because of what they think it means. Mm -hmm. So if you think forgiveness means I'm saying what you did was okay, or I'm absolving you of all your responsibility, right? That what you did to me doesn't matter, then you're not going to forgive. Right. Some people say forgive and forget. I... I don't agree with that at all. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not healthy. I mean, there's a difference between remembering and ruminating. Mm. Some people, they go over their hurts and they rehearse them and they see them the same way. They see themselves and they end up hurting themselves as a result. Mm -hmm. Whereas when- Or their children. Right, exactly. Because when you don't heal, you pass that- you pass that generational legacy on. Mm -hmm. Again, so healing, emotional healing and trauma is like, trauma is like pressing pause on your emotional development. So mm -hmm. if you are not the full and best version of yourself, you're not able to give all that you are to your, ch to your children. So you're automatically giving them less than you could mm -hmm. because you are choosing not to heal. So when you choose to heal, when you remember, when you remember the pain, and this is what's, this, this is what's a little bit different. Some people, they remember the pain, the, the pain, they replay it over and over and over, but they're not processing the mm -hmm. experience. Just because you recall something doesn't mean that you process it. Right, right. So when I, when I work with people, I, I teach them what I call the ATI process. Okay. 
Okay, this is a process. Any kind of healing therapeutic journey is going to move through these three steps. You're going to increase awareness, you're going to increase tolerance, and you're going to increase intentionality. Okay. You're going to become aware of what you are feeling, and most importantly, the thoughts attached to those feelings. People think emotions and thoughts are the same, but they're not. And in our society, we, we speak in a very confusing way. We say statements, I feel like, you know, I feel like, right? I feel like you're not listening to me. That's not a feeling. That's not a feeling. An emotion is a single or compound word. So if you were to say, you know what, I feel irritated because I don't think you're listening to me. Now you've separated the emotion from the thought because the thought is where you can actually gauge whether or not it's accurate. But a lot of times we hold our thoughts as if they're facts and yes. we hold our feelings as if they're facts. So because I feel like you're not listening to me, all of a sudden it's an accusation. You're not listening to me when in reality, the person heard every word you said. If you just gave them the opportunity and asked, you know, I don't think you're listening to me. I feel a little irritated. Are you actually paying attention? It gives them the opportunity to say, actually, no, I wasn't paying attention. I got distracted or to say, yeah, you said this, you said this, you said this, and you said this. So when we can learn to appropriate our thoughts and our emotions because we're aware of them, then we have a better chance of doing the second thing, tolerating them. Mm. Tolerating our emotions is critical in order to be intentional with our actions and our choices. A lot of the times we live in reactive mode, like we feel something and we run from the feeling or we feel something and we just go with it. Right. It's like the emotions are in the driver's seat. You're not being intentional when you are reactive. You want to be response-able. Okay? You right. want to be able to respond. Being able to tolerate what you feel helps you to be able to be intentional. So when you're feeling angry, you can feel angry and not punch somebody in the mouth. Mm -hmm. You can feel betrayed and hurt and not run away from a situation. You can feel afraid. And as you know, the good book says, do it anyway, right? Yeah. Like there's so many things that we can do when we can tolerate what we feel so that we can be intentional, intentional with our actions, our choices, our words, our behavior. So it's important to learn how to do that. And when we can do that, then we have healthier and more healing and whole relationships. That's really powerful. You know, I really like the ATI. <clears throat> you know, one thing that I, I want to I want to ask you is that that tolerance piece can be really tricky because I see a lot of people who are comfortably uncomfortable in their life, in their job, in their business, in their relationship, and they tolerate it for a very long time at the expense of their mental health, their well-being, their hopes, and their dreams. So at what point, you know, does that, do we go from tolerating to pushing through that to, to feed into what you need for yourself to thrive? Mm -hmm. So when I say the word tolerate, I don't necessarily mean condone and put up with things that are living beneath your level of, of worth and value. Yeah. I mean, being able to handle what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So that living comfortably with things that are uncomfortable that, you know, I, I call that more like coping. Yeah. Yeah. Right. People cope with stuff and they just, they just coast. 
that's very different. Than and there's being, lower standards as well. You know, yeah. you know, Tony Robbins talks a lot about your standards, right? You, you don't get what you think you deserve. You get what your standards are. Right. And so if you raise your standards, everything around you that you want is going to be at that standard of that, that, that you set for yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. That's relationships. That's your job. That's your business and everything. So yeah, I look at it as kind of like that. What is your standard? Like, why are you complaining about this job? That's not treating you well. That's that's abusing you. Why are you complaining about this relationship? Is that the standard that you set for yourself? Right. Is that your standard of, of care for yourself and love and respect? You know, so I, I think that that's a, a interesting way to look at it as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And when people are living beneath, you know, the level of their worth and their value, it's quite often fear and anxiety that they're not really addressing. Right. So believe it or not, they're not really tolerating that emotion. They're avoiding it. Right. Right. They're they're they are avoiding dealing with whatever it is that's saying, okay, well, you can't do it. You're not good enough. Right. You know, all those limiting beliefs, all those things, those actually create anxiety for right. us. Right. So I do I, even today I, I had brilliant sessions with two people and it's a similar theme they weren't aware of how they were imagining themselves in the future Mm. so anxiety essentially is a picture of the future that's negative right if you imagine a negative future like the horror movie called your life you're going to feel anxious in your body (laughs) right and people aren't aware that what they are imagining is things going poorly. So to avoid that, they don't try. They don't push themselves. They don't put themselves in uncomfortable positions. Or more importantly, they never really develop the habit of seeing themselves as successful, seeing themselves as progressing and growing and and having what it takes and then some. And, you know, for me, just integrating my faith is so important to me. I grew up, and the the beauty of the gospel is God with us, like Emmanuel, like Jesus coming in to yeah. be with us, into our situation. But all my life, I grew up imagining myself on my own. Mm. That scared little boy, on my own. Even as a man, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta pay the bills. If I don't do this, it's just me. It's on me. It's on me. It's on me. And I never really imagined myself being helped by God things working out well for me. And now that I'm starting to do that, I'm starting to live that way. I'm starting to live free. But but, but this like, okay, this you said a couple of things. <laughs> I want to go to that first and then I'm going to go to this other thing. But what's interesting is I know a lot of people listening are going to be like, okay, but how did you not see that when you were faithful and you know you were... We're studying the word and all that kind of stuff. Because I think what happens is a lot of people who have some type of faith, they're faithful in a certain way, but I don't think they really embody the words and and what God is trying to tell them or whatever you believe in. And so like, sometimes you see people who are like, you're like, but you, you were in church your whole life. How come you're not, you didn't understand this about yourself or you're not at this level or your relationship isn't amazing because they think that everybody who 
attends church or has a faith or whatever should should automatically just know these things. So like yeah. like what would you say about that? Because you were saying like you were heavy in in the word and you were you know you were in the gospel and the choir, all these things or whatever. Yeah. So what would yeah. you say about that when you didn't even realize these things until much later? Was there a block? Was there something that was holding you back from experiencing and embodying and embracing? what your creator was trying to tell you or was, I don't know. You tell me, what was that? Why did it, why did it take so long in in some people's minds? Right. It was, it was all of that. It was all of that. (laughs) So, so as a child, you grow up in an environment and as much as I was reading the word, the words of other people and their understandings of the word were on par. If anything, their words, their voices were louder than the word itself. Mm-hmm. So as I was growing and starting to take on listening for God myself and started to read the word for myself, my understanding started to change. So that's part one. Okay. Part two is, you know, chronology isn't synonymous with maturity. No. <laughs> right? So just because you are growing physically doesn't mean that you are maturing. That's right. So that takes us back to this whole emotional development piece. That was that was like a an augmentation and a release into who God has really called me to be. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I started to be open and process what was going on in my life, to really start to look at it and be like, oh, this is who I am. Oh, that's what you're telling me. Oh, so, you know, I started to experience all these revelations and a deeper understanding. I mean, the scriptures tell us in all that getting, get understanding. Mm -hmm. And people say that, you know, those who know better do better. But there's a difference between knowing here and then knowing here, like really, really understanding. And when I work with people and some of the work that, you know, God helped me to do internally, it involved both of those things to look back, to understand, to comprehend how did I make these decisions or what decisions other people made that impacted me? How did it logically make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I see that. I see. So when I was bullied as a kid, I interpreted that, you know, the world is an unsafe place. Mm -hmm. And then that I had to run in order to say, in order to be safe. I got to run. The best thing to do is to flee, right? That, yeah. I, I was conditioned. I was a fast kid. Right? I, I could have been in the Olympics. Man, I'm telling you, I had some good practice early on. So, you know, that stayed with me. That stayed with me. And it's not until I stopped and I reflected. For my, my 40th birthday, one of the gifts I gave to myself was I looked at all the pivotal moments in my life. Mm. I created a timeline. No, I get my clients to do that too. I get my clients to actually do that. And there's a framework because it's so important to know where you started to get these ideas of certain things and what's possible and what's available and emotional energy and all that. Yeah, that's cool. I I do the same thing. Yeah. And when I did it, I actually looked at what did I learn from that experience? Mm Mm-hmm. And when I said, what did I learn? Meaning, what did I walk away believing right. from that experience? And then I had these columns. And then the last column was like, was that true? 
Because a lot of the things I learned, a lot of things that I believed, they weren't true. Mm-hmm. So then I could move on to say, well, what is actually true about me, about God, about life? And it shifted me from seeing myself the way that I saw myself for all those years leading up to it. Mm. So as much as I had exposure to the word, I wasn't really internalizing and understanding what God had been saying to me all along. It, it, so many things are about perspective, right? And, you know, my, I was, I just went out to a lunch with a friend of mine, or a former colleague, and, you know, she, she shared something with me. Her coach, one time she was being coached and, and her coach said, okay, on the phone, he said, okay, I want you to sit where you're sitting and let me know everything that you can see in your room. And she starts describing the room. Now she says, I want, and her coach says, stand up on your desk, be safe, stand on your desk and, and tell me everything you see from that, from that angle. And then she said, get under the desk and tell me everything. And at every vantage point, you see something different and that's life, right? Like when you're stuck, you can only see it from the under the desk perspective. I can only see things at low level, low energy, you know, and then as you start to grow up, you can kind of see things from a different perspective. And then once you kind of do some work and some healing, you see things at a whole different perspective. It's like, oh, that that wasn't even true. Or I, I made that bigger than what it was, or that wasn't as as bad as I thought. And so that's the power of, you know, self-reflection. If you're looking at it from a perspective of healing or healed, because like you said, you can ruminate and keep going back and seeing it the exact same way, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's something interesting that that you did. But I have a question for you. Like you, you've gone through these different iterations and career journeys and paths that, you know, might not make sense to anybody. So did your parents at any time ever say to you, like, why are you doing that? Like, why, like, why are you jumping from this to that? Did they ever say that to you? Did no, that ever? Oh, no, wow. no. My parents, they wow. were always supportive. I mean, as a kid, I wanted to be a medical doctor. I wanted to be a pediatrician. Right. Uh, so my dad was disappointed when I first, I, I was like, I want to go to Bible college. He's like, you're too smart to go to anybody's Bible college. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they, they were supportive as, as best as they could. But, you know, as I got older, I mean, I've had so many wonderful work experiences and they've all been good. I've been in the helping field, like I said, for 18 years. And the the healing that happened in my relationship with my parents. And I think it 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 spoke volumes to them about the value of what I what I get to do and how I get to serve people. So no, my parents have always been very supportive. Well, well I think you're lucky because there might be some people listening right now who might be like, listen, I want a career change. I want to start a business. I want to write this book. You know, I want to do a podcast. I, I, you know, I want to change, move to a different country, but, you know, people around me don't believe in my vision and my goal and my dream. Like, what would you say to somebody in that position? What would you say to someone right now who has this dream and it feels like maybe the people closest to them, the loved ones might not support them? Well, it's funny that although my parents supported me and believed in me and God himself believed in me, the most influential voice in the entire world is the one in your head. So if you don't believe in you, it really doesn't matter, right? 
you know, when people don't believe in you, that is simply their opinion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we, we don't realize that the value of, we assign, we appropriate value. We assign value to people's opinions. People's opinions don't have power unless we say it does. That's right. And I used to go around thinking everybody, everybody's opinion mattered. Right. Me too. (laughs) But here's, here's what's interesting. Here's why I thought everybody's opinion mattered. You talked about growing up in low-income housing, and I can appreciate that. I remember moments, and my parents did a good job. They did the best that they could, and you know, we would have you know eggs and crackers for dinner and stuff like that sometimes. And I, I love those foods, so it was not a big deal. But you know, bully right. right. beef and rice—you know, yeah. those are like yeah. staples, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. But what was interesting was the dialogue that my dad had. He would constantly say, education is the way out. Education is the way out. Way out, way out of what? The way out of poverty. So I internalized this poverty. It was insidious. Mm-hmm. I was always afraid that I wasn't going to have enough. Yeah. And it moved from not having enough to not being enough. That's right. I was afraid that I wasn't enough. I wouldn't be. And it's not until you start to recognize one, that that's not true, that you do have incredible value. When you start to believe that, then the opinions of people don't matter. Mm-hmm. They don't matter. So for me, I was hyper vigilant and worried about not having enough, worried that there wasn't going to be enough. So even in my pursuit of a career, I was thinking, okay, well, I have to make this person happy so that they will buy what I'm selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't, right? So it, exactly. So it wasn't really, as much as I am still doing the same actions, the motivation beneath it is completely different. Yeah. You could be doing the right actions, but it's fear-driven. Yeah. It's anxiety-driven as opposed to driven by desires, driven by desperation. And when we start to realize, oh, okay, well, actually, I don't need this person's approval. No. I don't need, that's the, actually, that's just that person's opinion. Mm-hmm. I, why does their opinion matter so much? Actually, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. If that person were no longer to exist, it would have no bearing on my life. I would still be able to move forward so yeah i think that i think that's really important you know i think so many people want approval from their parents or loved ones or society and you don't need approval right i always tell people you know you gotta you gotta stop asking permission and put people on notice you know (laughs) this is what i'm doing and if you're on board with it you are if you're not you're not that's all right And, and seek out people who are going in the same direction as you because sometimes people are like, I don't have positive people around me. I'm around so many negative people. And that's the great thing about the internet. You can join online communities of people who are going in the same direction you're going. And I always tell people, like, seek out people who are, you know, inspiring. Seek out people who, who challenge your thinking. Because so many of us stay in these pockets. And, you know, one of the biggest things, my audience is probably tired of me saying this, but 
this whole thing about belief is really interesting, right? Because I always say it's one of the biggest lies we've ever been told is that you just got to believe, you just got to believe in yourself to get started. Now, not to believe in yourself to, to take it to another level, but believe in yourself to get started. And so many people don't get started because they say, I don't believe that I can really do that. I don't believe I can really achieve that. But the thing is, most people who achieved anything great never believed they could either. What I tell people is progress equals belief. And if progress equals belief, you just got to get started. And as you start to make progress, you'll start to believe it. And all those people who didn't believe in you will believe in it. And I think that's a big thing for a lot of people. When I kind of break down this whole thing and take them through sort of this whole champion story and what were your wins in life and you know all that kind of stuff, people are like start to realize, you know what? I I overcame some difficult things. I accomplished things I never th- I graduated high school. I never even thought I could. So I think when people understand that, you don't you, you start to care less and less about what other people have to say. But then that also is a trigger for you to be like, wait, I just got started on this writing this book. I didn't know how to write a book. I wrote it and I did it. So the next thing comes up and they realize I just got to get started. And I think a lot of people, this whole thing about belief, I think a lot of people have it confused. You you don't believe that you can do anything until you're actually doing it. But the level of belief raises as you start to kind of take, do what you're doing on a consistent basis. So I see people, I see people confuse that all the time. You don't like, you just got to get started. The belief, Oprah back in local television, when they didn't want her blackface on TV, I promise you, never knew she was going to own a network. Mm-hmm. And even if she thought about it, she never knew 100%, right? Right. A lot of the times people equate believing to, to knowing. Yes. And, and being it. convinced. That's it. Right? But what's interesting is we're not aware of how we are actively believing and we're actively shaping our future with our thoughts. So, for example, you can believe something partially. (laughs) You can believe things that are in uh, opposition to each other. You can have conflicting beliefs, and most of us do. So we believe that we can't, but on some level, we actually know that it's possible. Right. Right. We, we do. We know. Because if you ask somebody, what would you tell somebody else? And they, they got all they got the... They dropped the game. Right? <laughs> oh, they know. This, this, they, this. they got all the best yeah. advice. Yeah. But when it comes to taking it for yourself, right? So you, in order to give it to somebody else, you, you actually are aware of it. You actually do believe there's some truth to it. Right. But you have this opposing belief. This opposing belief. So it's important, like you're saying... To, to act even when you're not convinced, right? even when you can't see that future, move towards it anyways. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's what I was talking about earlier about being aware. You know, I'm aware that I'm picturing myself failing and that causes me to feel anxious. But you know what? I'm going to breathe. I'm going to calm myself and I'm going to be intentional and take this action anyways. Yeah. Right. So you, you can move through that process really quickly when you are aware, you know, the steps, right? Because these patterned ways of thinking and feeling and existing, they've been with us for decades. Yes. 
And it won't change until we change it. Right. But you said it, it's patterns, right? Every time we have a, an emotion that's negative and limits us, it, it's almost as if it's a, a new nagging emotion. Every time you have a goal, you think you're starting from zero, but you're actually starting from experience. And so when you can realize the patterns, so, you know, I developed this, this, this goal achievement framework, right? It's called the get it done system. And it shows people that you're not starting from zero. There's things that you've accomplished in the past. Let's look at the patterns, right? Every time I was held accountable through certain people, I was able to do this. Every time I told this person I wasn't, well, that's a pattern, right? And so there's something about patterns in our behavior and our emotions that we can identify. And as soon as we recognize those patterns, we can figure out ways to go around them, through them, or utilize them if they're helping us to move forward. And so I think that's a really powerful thing too, right? Mm -hmm. Identifying and seeing, brother, we, we, we good, man. I, I like talking to you, man. <laughs> you, you're all right, man. You're okay. <laughs> you know, we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes because I know you have to go. First of all, talk about the book and why you wrote the book. So, so tell everyone about the book, show us the, the book again and let us know yeah, why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote the, the art of a genuine apology I like that. in my work with couples and families and relationships there's no such thing as a perfect person yet we are ill-equipped when it comes to addressing how we've hurt others hurting someone you love is inevitable mm -hmm. however being prepared to address it is what's really really important and people don't know how to do that well right. they, even when they want to i say good intentions aren't good enough Wow. People make the, they make the same mistakes and they use the buts and the ifs and I'm sorry that that's like chapter two. You don't want to do that. Okay. You right. don't want to do. However, a genuine apology is not just about sincerity. It's not just about being sincere. It's about having an accurate focus. Mm -hmm. When you are apologizing to someone, you are not really concerned about you, your intentions, why you did what you did. That has nothing to do with them. The focus is addressing their pain. Mm. So when you do that, there are five values woven into a genuine apology. Humility, empathy, responsibility, accountability, and vulnerability. And there are four steps that we get to take. It, I call it the live formula, right? And because when you apologize using this formula, your apology lives on long after you've offered it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because most people, they will get the first step, whereas you, you're specific, you list what you're apologizing for. Right. Most people, they miss out on the second step, which is imagine the emotional impact. Mm -hmm. When you imagine the emotional impact, it shifts from focus on you to the other person. It connects you on a heart level. You move past regret to actually experiencing remorse. There is a difference. It's powerful. Yeah. If you don't experience remorse, then you're not in a position to offer a genuine apology. Some people apologize to just get by and to, can we just move on? Please, I'm sorry. You know, for peace sake. No, that's not a genuine apology at all. That's manipulation. That's what that is, right? You know, there's a whole chapter on manipulation too. Bro, right? wait, did, 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 like, I'm going to have to bring you back just for that piece because Man, there is so much there, and I know that we don't have much time. That is powerful, though. That framework is so powerful. We 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 definitely need to bring you back 
before I ask you these final two questions, where can people buy the book? Yeah, it's on Amazon. You can get it from my site, but it's also on Audible. I narrated it, so it is what? there. Okay. Yes, check it out. Leave we'll link we'll link it in the we'll put all the links in the show notes in the description. So before you go, two final questions that I ask everybody on the show. What does grind mean to you? Grind in light of my shift from moving from a place of anxiety, grind for me means digging deep, knowing myself, discerning my motivations, and sticking with with desire and joy and authenticity. You know, those things move me. Whereas worry and hurry, it kind of it can move me too, but that not in a direction that I want to go in. So that's what Brian means to me now. And the final question is, what does gratitude mean to you? Gratitude is, is, it's the, it's the heartbeat of any relationship. Gratitude is a practice that helped me shift my negative focus. At the end of the day, I used to think, oh man, this sucked. This didn't go so well. When I started shifting regularly, reflecting constructively, what did I do well today? What went well today? It shifted me into gratitude. So that's been a very important part of my life for, for many, many, many years. Wow. Thank you, brother. Listen, man, let people know where they can connect with you. Where, where can they find you? How can they connect with you? CoachDrew.ca. Info at CoachDrew.ca is my email. And yeah, I ain't going anywhere. I'm easy <laughs> to find. Easy Got to things find. To do. He's easy to find people. Well, listen, brother. I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show, man. You know, we always have these great conversations and I'm looking forward to us, you know, having more of these conversations and probably doing some other things together. So really appreciate you being on the show and taking this time, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Coach Stone. Looking forward to our next conversation. All right, my brother. Take care. You do the same. Thanks so much for being my co-host on this episode of the Grind and Gratitude Show. I really appreciate you. I hope that you learned something and you're motivated to take action and get on your grind. Didn't that go by fast? If you want more, head over to grindandgratitude.com for show notes and more information about this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a rating so more people will tune in. And let me say this. There's something special about you. Grind until you find it. Be grateful when you get it.